Tonight I'd like to continue the discussion of sudden awakening and gradual cultivation. So what does the term sudden awakening mean? It's the recognition and direct experience of the open, empty, aware nature of mind. Nature of mind as being open, empty, and aware. Kenzi Rinpoche, who was one of the great Dzogchen masters of the last century, described it this way. He said, mind has no form, no color, and no substance. This is its empty aspect. I want to step back a moment, sidebar. When you hear these teachings, it's very helpful to listen in the right way. And that is, it's not listening to them as some statement of Buddhist philosophy. In teachings like this, he's pointing directly to the open, aware nature of our own minds. And so when you hear the words, They're really instructions. They're pointing to the nature of our own minds. So when you listen, see if you can hear them in that way. It's the very hearing of them is its own meditation because it helps us to look directly at the nature of our minds. Mind has no form, no color, no substance. This is its empty aspect. Yet mind can know things and perceive an infinite variety of phenomena. This is its clear aspect. The inseparability of these two aspects, emptiness and clarity, awareness, is the primordial continuous nature of mind. So sudden awakening is that moment of recognition, of experiencing the nature of our own minds. Now this empty, aware nature is not something that we need to get. It's not something we need to develop. Rather, it's something to recognize and come back to. It is already the nature of our own minds. So our practice is to recognize it and come back to it again and again. Practice is not about wanting and it's not about getting, but about letting go into the wisdom aspect of the mind. It's letting go into the wisdom mind of non-clinging which is the natural state of ease. Again, from Kensei Rinpoche, he said, awareness basically means freedom from clinging. Awareness basically means freedom from clinging. If there is clinging, it is not awareness. So non-clinging is the bottom line reference point of our practice. Everything we do, all the methods, you know, all the techniques that we use, 
all are in the service of this end. The recognition of the nature of mind, which is the mind of non-clinging. So then a question arises. If the awakened state of clarity and emptiness, if this awakened state, which is the nature of our own minds, <coughs> is already here, what does it mean to speak of gradual cultivation? If it's already here, what is there to cultivate? It's important to understand that sudden awakening does not mean that we are already fully enlightened. In case you've mistaken that in some way. We may have recognized to some extent this open, empty, aware nature of our minds. But as Zen Master Shunul, who framed this teaching of sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, Shunul goes on to say, and I think this is really important to understand, although we have awakened to original nature, beginningless habit energies are extremely difficult to remove suddenly. Hindrances are formidable, and habits are deeply ingrained. So how could you neglect gradual cultivation simply because of one moment of awakening? But he goes on. But although you must cultivate further, you have already awakened suddenly to the fact that deluded thoughts are originally void and the mind's nature is originally pure. There's something very profound in these teachings. He's reminding us, Chanel is reminding us here, that although one moment of awakening to the nature of mind, or many moments of that recognition, <clears throat> are not complete, still those moments of recognition transform the way we continue our practice. And that's why they're so important. As we practice gradual cultivation, you know, as we use the various methods and skillful means that we talk about, so we're gradually cultivating, but we're proceeding from the understanding that the hindrances and the defilements of mind which arise, which appear to us, are themselves empty and insubstantial without substance. So even as we're practicing with them, gradually cultivating the recognition of the nature of mind, we're working with the hindrances, with the defilements, but we understand that in their nature they too are empty. So our practice proceeds in a much more easeful way. In one description of the Buddha's enlightenment, he is sitting under the Bodhi tree, the night of his awakening, with that firm resolve not to get up from his seat until he's fully awakened, fully enlightened. So just imagine the power of that resolve. <clears throat> imagine coming in here. <laughs> I will not get up from my seat. 
until I have attained full awakening. Okay. <laughs> so, it's just the power, you know, the power of the Bodhisattva's mind. So as the story goes, as the night unfolded, different forces of Mara, which is the embodiment of illusion or ignorance, <coughs> different forces of Mara appeared in the Bodhisattva's mind. You know, and it's said that there were terrifying visions of violence and aggression and very seductive visions you know, of heavenly pleasures. And then in this story of his awakening, there's one line which for me encapsulates the very heart of our practice. In the face of all these enticing and terrifying appearances and experiences, it said, and the mind of the great being was not moved. You know, so you can just picture the Bodhisattva sitting under the tree, all of these appearances, terrifying and enticing, and, and the mind of the great being was not moved. So this can be the pole star of our own practice. Right? This is what we are endeavoring to accomplish. In whatever posture we're in, in whatever activity we're engaged in, are we pulled out of awareness? What has the power in our own experience to move our minds? You know, how are our minds seduced? There are many different levels of this to explore. We all know how easy it is to get lost in strong emotions, just to get caught up in the energy of powerful emotions and mind states. We can get lost in fleeting thoughts, you know, thoughts that just appear and they carry us off. On more subtle level, we can become fixated or lost in identification with consciousness itself. We identify with the consciousness, with the knowing. It's another kind of fixation. So what's so beautiful about the Buddha's teachings, he doesn't just say all this, he also points us very directly. He really helps us out by laying out, okay, what are the particular energies that are so seductive in our practice and in our lives? And it really is essential for us to begin to recognize these deeply ingrained habits, some of which are traditionally called the hindrances. So we need to recognize them, we need to practice recognizing them, and to explore not only their nature, you know, what is the nature of each of these mind states, but also to explore what it is that makes them so seductive. Why is it that we get caught again and again and again? When we explore and investigate this way, we see that the hindrances are not a personal problem. And they're really not even a difficulty in practice. 
but we can understand and explore the hindrances as the very place where we see the dynamic interplay between ignorance and awareness, between suffering and freedom. And again, this isn't Buddhist philosophy. This interplay is the play of our minds. We go from ignorance to awareness. We go from suffering to freedom. This is what's happening in our lives. Can we understand it? In the Dzogchen tradition, there's a saying that (coughs) the greater the emotion or the greater the defilement, the greater the awareness. And that's a little paradoxical. You know, what does that mean? It means that as we practice mindful awareness in the face of powerful emotions or mind states, then the awareness itself becomes stronger and more stable. So we can use the arising of these forces in the mind to actually strengthen the stability of our awareness. Can we practice so that our minds, like the mind of the great being, are not moved in the face of habitual energies? You know, I love that, the mind of the great being was not moved. Whatever was appearing, whatever was arising, can we emulate that? Can we practice that? So there are a few steps in the process. The first step is one of recognition. We need to practice recognizing the telltale signs of the different hindrances because they often come masquerading as something skillful and good. And we are fooled by their disguise. So we need to see past the disguise. We need to recognize the signs of the hindrances. So tonight I want to speak of two of the hindrances, beginning with the mind state of doubt. The word doubt can refer to two quite different mind states. One skillful, the other not so skillful. The skillful state of doubt is that mind state of inquiry, of investigation. You know, in Zen sometimes it's called the great doubt, where we're not just taking things with a blind belief, it's the opposite of dogmatic belief. It's really that sense of inquiry, inquiry, what is this? What is happening? What is the nature of this experience? So that's one meaning of doubt. The unskillful aspect we could call skeptical doubt. And this is the mind state of uncertainty, of indecision. So it's like being at a crossroads and not knowing which way to go. And the mind simply goes back and forth between the alternatives. Is this the right way? Is this the right way? And we end up not going anyplace. Skeptical doubt, unnoticed, is the most powerful of the hindrances because it has the power to bring our practice to a standstill. 
When we're lost in skeptical doubt, we don't go anyplace. We're just lost in that perplexity, confusion. When this doubt is strong, when this kind of doubt, indecision is strong, it doesn't even give us the opportunity to make a wrong turn and to learn from our mistakes. It's like we're frozen in indecision, always checking ourselves, you know, wondering, trying to decide. This quality of mind was expressed perfectly in a novel by Jan Martel, The Life of Pi, which is a great book. This is what he wrote. <clears throat> he said, to choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. <laughs> That's what doubt does. Not very effective. In meditation, doubt takes some very particular forms. And as we pay attention, we can learn to recognize the patterns that entice us again and again. As we all know, difficulties inevitably arise in our practice. There is nobody who undertakes this spiritual journey who doesn't face difficulties at different times. But these difficulties, if we don't know how to handle them, can become the fertile ground for doubting thoughts about the practice itself. <clears throat> what does sitting here, feeling the pain in my knee, have to do with anything? <laughs> what does it have to do with the suffering in the world? What does it have to do with my liberation? This practice is really useless. It's one form of doubt. Or with the great abundance and availability of teachings, very common, we might start comparing practices. Maybe I should be doing Tibetan chanting, you know, or Sufi dancing. That seems like more fun. Or there's some new teaching that proclaims that it is the freeway to liberation, <laughs> you know, the freeway to enlightenment. And we start wondering, is what I'm doing, is this really the fastest way to awaken? And so the mind starts getting lost in these thoughts. Maybe another way is faster. All of this is simply the doubting mind. But even after we've gotten past those kinds of doubts, you know, and we do have some confidence in the practice and some understanding, this particular hindrance, in a deeper way, can manifest as self-doubt. You know, we don't doubt the practice, we doubt ourselves. We doubt our ability to practice. Am I doing it right? How often have we had that thought? <laughs> You know, I can't do it. It's too hard. Maybe some other time. Sometimes the self-doubt is born out of feelings of unworthiness. You know, some deep feeling of unworthiness. Yeah, the practice is beautiful and the Dharma is beautiful, 
but this, I can't do this. I'm not worthy of doing it. One point, year, many years ago, His Holiness the Dalai Lama visited IMS, and someone asked him a question about feelings of unworthiness. And this person said, you know, it's very difficult for me to practice because of this feeling. I really doubt myself. You know, I have this feeling of unworthiness. And I haven't been with His Holiness a lot, but I've been, you know, and heard him quite a few times over the years. It's the only time I saw him really become fierce. So this person said, you know, I have these feelings of unworthiness, I can practice, and I kind of got really fierce, and he said, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. You are deceiving yourself. And it was such a cutting through of the delusion of unworthiness. If the nature of mind is the union of clarity and emptiness, that is the nature of everyone's mind. The feeling of unworthiness may well be there, but it is not a true understanding of the nature of our being. And the Dalai Lama was just calling it. You're wrong. You are deceiving yourself. So we need to really take that in. When the hindrance of self-doubt is strong, it's not only a hindrance in our practice, in our meditation, it becomes a very debilitating force in our lives. We're always checking ourselves, always holding back. And self-doubt, when it's unnoticed, can very easily lead into the deeper meaning of sloth and torpor. Now, usually we think of sloth and torpor as sleepiness, as dullness, you know, and you have a heavy sitting. That's the superficial meaning of sloth and torpor. The deeper meaning of those mind states is that quality of mind that retreats from difficulties, right? In the face of difficulty and challenges, it withdraws. That's the working of sloth and torpor on the deeper level. So that when we are filled with self-doubt and we're not noticing it, very easy to feed that state of pulling back from difficulty. And then we kind of go into an inner collapse. There's a very interesting phrase in English when we say someone is plagued by doubt. That's that's a common phrase. It's telling. Because doubt is like a plague. It's like a plague that weakens the mind. Instead of making the experiment, instead of arousing the energy and making the experiment, whether it's in meditation or in anything else in our lives, there's something we're interested in, Instead of making the experiment and then assessing for ourselves, is this beneficial, is it not beneficial, is it worthwhile doing, is it not, based on our own experience, the mind simply gets lost in endless speculation. Should I do it? Shouldn't I do it? I can't do it. And we don't accomplish anything. 
And self-doubt, this doubt becomes self-fulfilling because staying lost in the doubting mind is useless. We don't go anyplace. It doesn't allow us the opportunity to investigate for ourselves. Is this worthwhile? Is it helpful? Is it not? This endless conjecture and self-doubt is exhausting and painful. And it's likened in the text to a thorny mind that just keeps jabbing. I don't know, can you remember times of the doubting mind when you were lost in doubt, whether doubt about the practice or self-doubt? It's just, it's just that irritating jabbing in the mind. And we feel irritable and we feel dissatisfied and we feel discouraged when this is strong. The Buddha summed it up in his description of doubt and the other hindrances. He said, when we attend to them carelessly, they cause lack of vision, lack of knowledge, are detrimental to wisdom, tending to vexation, leading away from awareness. When we attend to the hindrances carelessly, all those consequences follow. Detrimental to wisdom, tending to vexation, leading away from awareness. So given that, we might well wonder, why would we ever be caught up in them? If it just leads to vexation, and away from awareness, and away from wisdom, how do we get seduced? Why do we get pulled into it again and again? If we can recognize doubt as it arises, and again, it's paying attention for each one of us to the particular form it takes in our minds. You know, we each kind of have our own little brand of it. To watch for how it arises. And if we have an interest and a quality of investigation and inquiry, the second step in the process is understanding its allure. What is it about doubt that seduces us? <coughs> we begin to see that the great seduction of doubt is that it comes masquerading as wisdom. We hear this very wise-sounding voice in our minds. It sounds so reasonable and so valid and so true. What's the point of doing this? Maybe some other time. Other practices are so much better. I can't do it. You know, and this voice sounds, and it's just, yes. <laughs> you know, it sounds so reasonable, and it sounds so wise. We need not to be fooled. This is doubt masquerading as wisdom. We need to see through its disguise. Or in daily life situations, 
we may have doubt about which of two alternatives to pursue. You know, we're often, we're often in life confronted with choices. And sometimes we just get caught in doubt. Should I do this? Should I do this? And in those situations, it's easy to get caught up in the obsessing thoughts about what to do. Not seeing, not recognizing that that is just the doubting mind. What feeds that and what keeps us locked into it is that very often we find it difficult to accept that in different situations we may not yet know what is the best thing to do. But for many people, not knowing is too uncomfortable. We don't like not knowing. So rather than resting in the not knowing until things become clear, we're driven to try to figure it out through our thought process. But if there's not yet a clarity of understanding, then this just keeps us being lost in the loop of endless thoughts, keeps us lost in the loop of this doubting mind. So, a little helpful mantra when you're lost in that obsession, you know, of perplexity about what to do, just going around and around and around, little mantra, it's okay not to know. It's okay not to know. Rest in the not knowing until you know. Much more easeful. If we become aware of doubt as just another passing thought and we don't give it any power, then in the midst of doubt itself, there can be a sudden awakening. If we see it for what it is, that this is just a passing thought in the mind, we see it, we recognize it, we're not fooled by its disguise, in the midst of that doubting thought itself, there can be a sudden awakening to its empty, insubstantial nature. In recognizing doubt as doubt, we are already aware and the mind of the great being was not moved. Seeing doubt as doubt, desire as desire, seeing everything for what it is, not being seduced. Doubt. There's another mind state that powerfully conditions our meditation, conditions our lives, and that is the mind state of aversion. And we can experience aversion in a variety of ways. Anger, hatred, annoyance, irritation, fear, ill will, grief, resentment, lots of forms of aversion. All of these mind states are conditioned reactions to what we find unpleasant. 
very rare that we feel aversion to what's pleasant. So all of these different mind states are forms of aversion. As with doubt, we can learn to recognize them when they arise, investigate their nature, and see the source of their hold on the mind. Why do we get caught in anger? Why do we get caught in ill will, in resentment? Aversion often arises in some pretty predictable ways. Very easy to see in relationship to physical pain. You know, whether it's in meditation or in our life. When there's physical pain in the body, very often, unless we've trained ourselves, there's just what seems a natural reaction of contraction, frustration impatience, fear. We just don't like it. Anybody here likes pain? (laughs) Well, maybe, I don't know, some people do, maybe. (laughs) Mostly not. The contraction of our energy system is a very good signal that some form of aversion is present. And so we want to watch as we're sitting, because pain arises in life. You know, there's pleasant feelings and unpleasant feelings. They're going to come. We can really pay attention to the response of our whole energy system, the response of our bodies to those unpleasant feelings because that will tell us, it shows us, whether or not there's aversion in the mind. If we're feeling a tightening, a contraction, it's a pretty good guess that there's some form of aversion present. Aversion can arise in one form or another when we think about past painful or unpleasant situations. You know, we're sitting here minding our own business and then all of a sudden there's a thought or an image of something that happened in the past, something that was unpleasant, that we didn't like, some about some person or some event, and we can get angry just thinking about it. But what's really happening? In that moment, we're really getting angry at a thought. The situation isn't happening in that moment. A thought is happening. One of the Kamala's uh, told many Munindraji stories last night. One of my favorite Munindra lines, and it's, he used to say this very often, he said, A thought of your mother is not your mother. (laughs) It's a thought. But we take our thoughts to be so real as if the thought is the thing itself. You know, so a thought of anything is not the thing. It's a thought. So why do we sit here and think and then get angry? But more ridiculous than that. We can get angry about thoughts of things that haven't even happened. (laughs) You know, we imagine something is going to happen, or we anticipate some event, and we get angry just thinking about it. So we want to see this. (laughs) Basically, it's a form of insanity. (laughs) 
we can get impatient or frustrated with unpleasant situations on retreat, you know, or, or with difficulties in our practice, you know, when we're struggling, when we're, when we're having a hard time, aversion arises. But then, not only do we just stay with the aversion towards what's happening, very often in those times and situations, we project the dissatisfaction in our own minds onto others. You know, when we're feeling grumpy, or discouraged, the smallest thing can provoke irritation or aversion. You know, and there's this phenomena, which I'm sure you're familiar with, called the Vipassana Vendetta. <laughs> there's somebody in the retreat who just bugs you. You know, you don't like what they wear, you don't like how they walk, you don't like how they eat, and you don't even know them. It really has nothing to do with that person. It has to do with the reflection of what's going on in our own minds, but we're not seeing it often. Aversion can arise when we personalize difficult situations that are impersonal. You go to the airport two hours early, plenty of time. You look on the monitor, flight canceled. (laughs) Maybe you abide in perfect equanimity, but certainly at times in yourself, or as you observe the people around you, you can see lots of irritation, annoyance, frustration arising. As if it's personal. You know, as if this was done to me. Sometimes aversion arises because there are underlying emotions, unnoticed, which are feeding it. You know, and so we can often be lost or identified with the anger or the fear or whatever it may be because there's something else going on that we're not seeing. I'll just give you an example. Quite a number of years ago, I was teaching a retreat uh, for lawyers, law students, uh, a few judges. And we were having a group discussion, and one of the law students, he was a second or third year student, he said something very revealing. You know, the legal profession is, in in many situations, is very adversarial and is highly charged and often a lot of tension. And this, this law student said in the group, I have to get angry so I won't feel the fear. And it was so telling, you know, because in his mind, to feel the fear would be a weakening, you know, a sign of weakness, and he couldn't do his work skillfully. That that was his frame. And so in order not to feel the fear, he would get angry, you know, and manifest that as, that's the power mode. Yeah, and we just started talking about how another possibility is that it's fine to feel the fear. One doesn't have to be lost in it, one doesn't have to drown in it, one can just open to it and feel it, know it's there, and proceed with equanimity, with evenness, with some discerning wisdom. 
but because that was not, had not been in his, you know, understanding, the fear was driving the anger. So given all these forms of aversion, you know, aversion to physical pain, aversion to unpleasant situations, people in the past or in the imagined future, or difficult situations in life, or because there's underlying emotions. But given how unpleasant forms of aversion generally are, you know, it doesn't feel good, what is its seductive power? Why do we get caught in aversion over and over again, just as we get caught in doubt? The seductive power of anger is that very sweet feeling of being right. I should be angry or irritated or annoyed. Look at what's happening. Look at what that person is doing. I should feel this way. The Buddha described it just so aptly. He said, anger with its poisoned source and honeyed tip. Isn't that, I mean, at its source, it's poisoned, it's a defilement, you know, and when we get to the source, we can feel it as that, it's a burning, it's a fire, but it has this honeyed tip. There are many different skillful means for working with aversion in the mind. Sometimes the moment of recognition is enough. You know, it's arising, the anger, the aversion, the fear, the irritation, whatever it is, it arises, and we see it clearly. We understand that it's arising out of causes and conditions. We see its selfless nature. It's like watching a movie in the mind. You know, when when we're really stable in our awareness, we can see this arising, and like the mind of the great being, not moved. We just see it appear and disappear. When we have this level of discernment, we understand one of the Buddha's teachings, which he repeated very often. He said, phenomena should be seen with perfect wisdom. This is not I, this is not mine, this is not myself. All phenomena should be seen with perfect wisdom. This is not I, this is not mine, this is not myself. So if we are in that place of wisdom, and anger or aversion or fear arises, we see it in that way, we're not caught. It comes and it goes. Often, though, we do get caught. You know, we see it, we recognize that it's there, but we keep getting lost in the very powerful story that it's telling us. How often do we get caught up in the story of our fear, of our anger, of our resentment? Sometimes these emotions are telling us something important. For example, we might feel anger at some great injustice or we might feel it as the need to set some appropriate boundaries. But can we understand the message of the emotion 
without being overwhelmed by it, without drowning in it, and without acting it out. So sometimes there's information in the emotion that's valuable, but how are we relating to it? Here, in working with all these forms of aversion, it's very helpful to check the attitude in the mind about them. Because we may recognize it, we may understand and explore its nature, and we can even see what its seductive quality is, but we may be holding it in a way that is feeding it. So we need to check our attitude. How are we relating to the anger? Beside the honeyed tip of self-righteousness, which often feeds it, there can be other ways of relating that strengthen the aversion. Often there's aversion to the aversion. We don't like it. Or there's self-judgment about the fact that it's arising. So here we're trying to get rid of aversion with aversion. Doesn't work. So it just stays locked in. It's important to understand that all of these hindrances and difficult energies are not intrinsic to the mind. They are visitors to the mind. They arise out of particular causes and conditions. It's just that they've come as visitors for so long and so frequently that we think they live here. You know, we think, yeah, that's me. That's just how I am. And so we identify with them and we get lost in them. We strengthen them. Forgetting their insubstantial, impermanent nature, we struggle. The story of Milarepa, the great Tibetan yogi of I can't remember which century, but it's quite a few hundred years ago. So there's a story of Milarepa. He was this you know, really great yogi, and he was practicing in a cave. And in the Tibetan you know, way of describing things, he was practicing in a cave, and he was really being hounded by demons. And the more he fought with the demons, the stronger they got, the more powerful they got. And he just tried everything you know, in his struggle with these demons. And then at a certain point, he checked his attitude. And he began looking upon the demons with compassion. And it said that he visualized his body as heavenly nectar. And he started feeding the demons. And as soon as his mind opened with compassion, as soon as he started feeding the demons, they disappeared. So there's a lesson here. What does feeding the demons mean for us in our practice? Whatever the particular hindrance is, whatever the particular difficulty that's arising, difficult emotion, it means checking the attitude in our mind about them. These attitudes often go unnoticed. You know, we recognize the emotion, we see what it is, we understand its nature, but we're not seeing how we're holding them. 
So use that question a lot. What's the attitude in my mind about that? And practicing opening with compassion, with softness, with gentleness to whatever it is that's there. So one Tibetan teaching expresses this attitude of openness in this way. It says, the defining characteristic of mind is to be primordially empty like space. The realization of the nature of mind includes all phenomena without exception. When we're struggling, whether it's in our meditation or in our lives, when we're struggling, it signifies one thing. It signifies non-acceptance, non-inclusion of something. Because if we were accepting, we wouldn't be struggling. So whenever we're in that place of struggle, that becomes a very powerful feedback message. If we're struggling, can we sit back, settle back, open up? Okay, what am I not opening to? It might be some discomfort in the body. It might be some unpleasant emotion. It might be the fact that the mind is thinking a lot. Whatever it is, once we're accepting of it, the struggle ceases. So in this vein, I want to read one of my recent most favorite poems. The title of the poem is <clears throat> Another Reason I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. <coughs> and it's by Billy Collins. Really, this poem, it's the whole teaching. Okay. So listen carefully. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on the way out. <laughs> the neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast. But I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently, as if Beethoven had included a part for barking dogs. When the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. <laughs> That's it. What's your barking dog solo? You know, when we're not mindful, when we're not aware, all of the difficult energies, all of the hindrances, all of the difficult emotions, all of the barking dogs obscure the natural wisdom of mind.
But when we are mindful of them, when we simply include them, it's the barking dog solo. That's what's arising. When we include everything in the field of awareness and simply allow things to appear and change and disappear, then all of these hindrances, all of these difficulties become a vital part of our practice of awakening. They're not a problem. We're not struggling because we've included them in the orchestra. Yosho Ken, another great Dzogchen master, he said, abide in the natural state and rest your weary mind. Just sounds so nice, doesn't it? Just abide in the natural state, abide in awareness, abide in the openness, and rest your weary mind. So I'd like to close with just a teaching from one of the great Thai forest masters, uh, Ajahn Mun, who was kind of the grandfather of the Thai forest tradition. He was said to be an arhant, and he had you know, all the great powers of mind, very great being. He said, of all the many things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. In fact, the mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world, so be sure to look after it well. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize Dhamma. Understanding the mind is the same as understanding Dhamma. Once the mind is known, then Dhamma in its entirety is known. Arriving at the truth about one's mind is the attainment of Nibbana. Clearly the mind is a priceless possession that should never be overlooked. Let's sit for a couple of minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.